0: you'll get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by LifeAid, and I have subscribed to one of their products, FocusAid, for several years now, and I'm usually drinking it when I'm doing the interviews. As many of you are probably aware, there is an energy drink crisis and most of these products are horrendous for your health. LifeAid has created a brand new holistic alternative called FitAid Energy. At only 15 calories, these drinks are full of BCAAs, turmeric, B-complex, glucosamine and only have 200 milligrams of caffeine from green tea extract. They are naturally sweetened using products like Agave Nectar, and come in four amazing flavors mango sorbet peach mandarin blackberry pineapple and raspberry hibiscus and i have to say the mango one is absolutely my favorite now many of nutritionists on this show have hailed the power of caffeine when used correctly they also talk a lot about not using it closer to bedtime so me personally I like to use their energy drink in the morning now, and then as it goes into the afternoon time, switch to Focus Aid. therefore I'm not disrupting my circadian rhythm. Now LifeAid is offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 30% off your first purchase with free shipping if you go to fitaidenergy.com forward slash bts. That's fitaidenergy.com forward slash bts. And if you want to hear more about LifeAid and the man behind it, listen to episode 207 with the founder Aaron Hind. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stump man, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now to qualify for the 35% off, go to Thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on Sign In and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nicole Scaraglino. Now, Nicole is an artist, a member of the Black Rifle Coffee family, but she was also in New York City in fashion school when 9-11 happened. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into art, the citizen's perspective of the terror attacks on September 11th, her mental health journey out, tattoos, bodybuilding, post-traumatic growth, the power of art, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 640 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you... Nicole Scaraglino, enjoy. Well, Nicole, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. I know that we kind of bounced around a little bit. I had to reschedule, you had to reschedule, so I'm very, very excited to finally sit down today.
1: Me too, and I hope I'm as good on the recording as we were in that initial phone conversation.
0: Yeah, we should have just recorded that. It would have been great.
1: It was great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: Uh, Seattle, Washington.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Um, I was born on Long Island, New York, South Shore. So very um, blue collar kind of place. One of the five boroughs. My mom had a lot of odd jobs. Uh, She worked everywhere from dry cleaners to McDonald's before eventually working for banks in North Carolina. And then um, she retired out of the school system. So she was a teacher's assistant. My dad works in, he's he does computer engineering, communications type stuff, which sounds so vague that I still, to this day, can't fully articulate everything that my dad does. And apparently I don't really know everything that my dad does or has done. When, we, when my parents made the decision to move our family out of New York. Uh, My dad had just gotten laid off from Fairchild, Fairchild Weston, I believe it was called back then, which later went on to get bought out by Lockheed Martin. So it became Lockheed Martin. So I didn't realize until I was an adult and I'm talking like maybe six, seven years ago that my dad actually, as a civilian worked for one of the largest defense contractors in the in the nation and did a lot of really interesting stuff and went to a lot of really interesting places. He would always go on these business trips and go to places like, um, area 51 (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, in Nevada and send us pictures and bring us back cool stuff. And, and later on after the family moved to North Carolina, he was working for different companies and, uh, with research triangle park and he did, um, a year in Sweden and or a year in Germany. It was one or the other. It was in like Sweden or Germany for nine months. He did both, but I can't remember if it was nine months in one, a year in the other. But Germany, Sweden, so it, he kept going to these like really crazy places. He was supposed to go to Malaysia right after that first time there where the one plane disappeared. Do you remember that? And yeah, so- yeah.
0: Almost like a B- Bermuda Triangle type thing.
1: Yeah. So and I'm just thinking the whole time that my dad—he's really like—he's he's not the biggest on sharing like deep personal information. And he, I was just like, well, he's a nerdy, smart computer guy, and I wish I had inherited some of that. Well, shit, I had no idea some of the stuff that was. I still don't know what he really was doing, but it was interesting. I'm—I'm I'm sure maybe someday I'll find out everything.
0: I can imagine your dad going, well, I'm no rocket scientist. (laughs) I'm just fucking with you. Actually, I am a rocket scientist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I grew up, um, my sister, I have one sister, she's four years younger than me, polar opposite in like political views and everything else. Uh, We've just led very different lives. We try, try to still stay close, but we're so very different. And I grew up with a safe, full of guns in the house. And my dad was always big on shooting and teaching the Boy Scouts. And I was terrified of guns. But, you know, I got this nerdy computer dad that I don't fully know what he does for a living. And we, we've got like an arsenal in the house that I don't, I won't, I didn't learn how to use or touch myself. But that was a was an interesting dynamic growing up. My parents have been married almost 50 years. They fought like cats and dogs growing up. They're, we're Italian. So our house was pretty chaotic, but all in all, like I I had it really good. I've I've got a good family. We didn't grow up with a, a lot of money, but we always made the best of everything. I always felt like I had a despite the chaos, I still always knew that I could depend on them or going back to home and having kind of a, a safe but noisy place. <laughs>
0: Now, what about your mom? To to initially be working in you know McDonald's and and the uh, dry cleaners, how did she navigate her own life path to get her to the school system and, and a profession?
1: I think just meeting people and applying for better and better stuff. So my mom was also an artist, and she went to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, which is where I wound up going to school. It's why I wanted to go there, but she studied um, display and exhibit design and wound up dropping out. Um, and she, I don't know what she did when I was really little, but it was mostly hype. Her primary job was taking care of my sister and I, and she was always the the mom that like made our lunches and put notes in them. And, um, but we, we did struggle at times financially. So my mom did go out and, and look for work and, she kind of did whatever she could, and eventually, once we had moved down to North Carolina, that's when it, it seemed like she was able to find better quality jobs. The I'm not sure how she got into the banks. I don't know if it was a matter of just applying and getting the training or if she knew someone. She definitely networked her way um, into the school system. It may have been one of the regulars that came into the bank, but I'm not sure. But I know that they had developed – I know that she had developed a friendship, and she was that teacher's assistant for a while.
0: See, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday. When you start getting older, you start realizing, you know, if, if you've – I think if you've made good choices – Well, I mean, either way, you start realizing that you know – you know is that a network of people that can lead you in a certain way now that could be a bad way you know people that can kill someone for you or get you drugs or you know <laughs> someone you know who like this now i mean this network of these amazing people i've interviewed leads to other amazing people that i interview so but you know there used to be a, a kind of um kind of snide remark said about acting oh it's who you know well every profession is who you know fire service is who you know you know so that's a good thing if you're a good person you surround yourself with other good people you can help raise each other up
1: and there's a saying that uh says that you are the the sum of the five people that you spend the most um, time with and i do believe that that's true i mean we're tribal by nature so whoever we're spending time with we are going to start to take on each other's attributes either consciously or subconsciously. And I believe that we are including myself attracted to certain people for any type of friendships, relationships, work environments. When, because we want, there's something in that that we want or need out of, out of that group of people, that environment, there's something that we may admire that we, we want to, achieve ourselves in some way. And I don't think that's a bad thing. We want to hang around people that you want to be like, and then you lift each other up.
0: Absolutely. Well, what about sports? I know, you know, you got into art and I want to love to hear about that in a moment as well, but were you playing any sports back then?
1: Uh, Back then I started out in dance. So I started dancing really young. I think I was like three when I started dance school and I did everything from ballet to tap, to jazz to acro and I loved it and basically just wanted to be Madonna when I grew up. I really did want to like professional dance. And when my family moved to North Carolina, we really, after like the layoff and everything, we're struggling a lot more financially and New York is really expensive. So when we moved to the South, I, after a lot of begging and pleading, we only signed up for a, a dance school. It was kind of part, part of the way through the year for this school, because they work off of, they build up to recitals at the end of the year. And then after that, um, my parents were, were just kind of like, we, we don't have the money for this anymore. And we moved when I was um, partly into fifth grade. So I was going into middle school. So my whole game plan and the way I worked it was, I just made myself a cheerleader (laughs) because there was a heavy dance component. And that was my way of getting that fill of to be able to continue doing dance and performance. And, and that was my sport where yeah, sport, but it's athletics, it's activity, it's movement. And so eventually I did make it into uh, cheerleading In I think it was eighth grade. You could try out in seventh. I made it in eighth grade and then I continued that for a while. So I did that. I did swim teams in the summer. I did a little bit of track and field, um, terrible terrible choice of events the 800 <laughs> it's like run a half a mile as fast as possible a half a mile yeah it's half a mile
0: mm-hmm, it is yeah
1: yeah it's a terrible distance and turns out later in life i found that I'm, i can actually i can sprint and i can actually do distance i was always told being built the way that i am petite and uh more muscular that i i'm not built like a distance runner you are what you train yourself for I've run 20 miles at this point so I I found that I enjoyed that but I did a lot of different those were my sports I don't think I played gymnastics varsity gymnastics I did a lot
0: (laughs) (laughs) now you obviously your goal was to dance alongside or even be Madonna but aside from that did you have any other career aspirations
1: um art artist I wanted to be an artist I think that was it, looking back I was also told my grandmother was an artist she worked in the school system so there's a lot that I'm looking back and I'm like oh okay it's kind of in a sense almost programmed that that was what I was good at and that's what I should be doing you're gonna be an artist well not a ton of living typically and just being an artist for a living but I did I I knew that I was good at art I knew that I was good at sports and I can say that i probably didn't have a ton of career aspirations and it's kind of embarrassing to say but I'm struggling with that as we speak <laughs> that I'm kind of trying to figure out what my next moves are and if it's um the clock feels like it's ticking for me I'm I'll be 42 this month and I still feel like there are things that I want to do and I want bigger but I'm not sure what that is and that's kind of hard to admit
0: well, with the art itself, I mean, there are, like I said, I, I was talking to you before we start recording, I just interviewed Shane Taylor, who played the medic in Band of Brothers. We came out of drama school at the same time. I did a one-year drama school class, ultimately, because I was following a girl into that college. He <laughs> actually truly had a burning desire to act. They went through very right. different paths. You know, he became an actor. I didn't. I became a stuntman, ultimately. But, um, you know, it. there are people that do all these different, you know, creative roles and make money from it. Well, and
1: that's, oh, sorry. No, please jump in, jump in. So that actually, when I was little, I wanted to do modeling and acting because it went along with the whole dance and performance thing. And that was something that was interesting is that I remember being told a lot that I couldn't because I was little. I was never going to be what, which is ridiculous. I was never going to be the picture of what a, a model was. And I haven't done anything major now, but I've done some commercials, I've done some small bits and I've done some modeling. And I think that was my way of going like, all right, this was, this is possible for someone that is, you know, little (laughs) and maybe doesn't fit the traditional runway mold. But that was something that it all went into that performance and arts aspect. And there's, I think, a big difference in the arts versus uh, wanting to be a doctor or a a lawyer or something, there's a path and there's an end goal. And there's this job that you do with anything creative and the arts, it kind of just is. And I, for me, at least, I feel like there's so many different areas and things that I pull from experiences and environment and found objects and you just create things out of nothing, but there's no like major trajectory. And place that you're going where you're, okay, now I am this thing and now I do this job every day. These are my, this is what my daily life looks like. And there's a progression in the project management aspect. I guess there is a bit in art doing it for a living, but it it does feel a lot messier.
0: Now with the path, as you were progressing through the, the school years and, you know, in art class, you were producing, you know, works of art. What was the feedback you were getting? Was it was it encouraging? Was it discouraging for you to pursue it after school?
1: Very encouraging. I was a terrible student, <laughs> but I was very good at art and um, sports. So whatever, I, and that's still kind of I won't say that's totally true to this day because now I enjoy learning so much more as an adult, and I I understand what I need to do in order to study and and whatnot, but kind of still the same that I'm I excel at physical hard labor and creating art creating things from nothing but I did get very positive feedback I was in all um, AP advanced placement art classes and I started out young being able to mirror so I could look at something and I could draw it and it wasn't like oh that's kind of good it was like holy shit I was taking photographs and replicating them or cartoons and replicating them and then I was coming up with these really um uh intricate vivid images from my own brain which spawned typically from something like going on a long run and i would sit there and i'd visualize and i'd come up with something and then i'd go and sketch it and then i'd turn it into a painting and i started selling my art back when i was still in high school
0: so So what point did you hit a wall where you felt that road wasn't going to lead to a career
1: um Well, I don't know if I didn't feel like it was going to lead up to, it was interesting. So I I graduated high school. I barely graduated on time. I had to go to summer school twice, uh, my junior year and my senior year. So I, I walked in summer school and that was a big point of shame for a really long time. And I really thought it was just stupid. And it just turns out that number one, I had other things going on and number two, I just didn't learn by sitting in a desk and you know listening to someone speak at me and having to regurgitate. I'm a why person and a thinker and touch things and do things and be active. And that's what I need to, I need to put it into play in order for it to make sense. So I spent the next year, I was a lifeguard and I taught swim instruction to little kids. And I spent that year um, building a portfolio. Because I had a friend, we kind of knew each other in high school, we weren't super close, but she was planning on going to school for fashion design at FIT in New York, where my mom had gone to school. And I had had these early ideas of being a cheerleader in college and getting a scholarship, and that was not going to happen with the grades I had. So that was kind of crushed. And I didn't have any goal other than to just play a sport, like do this higher level professional, quote unquote sport. So when that didn't work out, I did really terrible. I barely graduated. Um, I knew I was good at art and this friend and I started talking and I came up with this game plan that um, I was going to try and get into art school because she had delayed her entry. She'd gotten accepted to FIT for fashion design and delayed her entry for a year so that she could build up money. Uh, She waited tables and she was going to build up money so that she could um, pay for that first year. So I took the year and I taught swim lessons and lifeguarded. And then I would spend the rest of my time just building this art portfolio. And I had some pieces from high school and then I built some more from there and I applied to FIT and I got in. So it was my way. I hated North Carolina in, in the 80s and 90s. I came from New York And it was a very urban part of New York. And so it was so different. And I, that was part of my my way out. I wanted to see the world. I knew that I had a, a shit ton more to learn about life and the world and people and didn't feel like where I was, was very diverse. So going back to New York felt natural anyways, because I had family there. I had friends there. It's it, to me felt like the center of the universe and Uh, I knew I could bring all the culture that I needed to me. If I couldn't travel, I could at least be in a place where I was exposed to tons of different types of people from all over. And I was definitely right on that. So I wound up getting accepted on the spot for my portfolio. I flew up. My friend flew with me. My mom was there with me and I got accepted. Well, when they saw my grades, um, I received a letter of rejection saying that, I They couldn't accept me based off of my GPA. So my friend who her mom worked for an airline and she was a, a bit more independent, not independent. I was as independent, but she had a bit more freedom than I did. Her, her parents kind of like let go of the leash a little, little bit earlier. And Kristen and I flew up the day after I received that letter of rejection. So these two 18 19 year olds I, I guess we must have been 18 at the time flew to Manhattan on our own and I called the dean and I asked for a meeting and I sat down in front of him and I pleaded my case and you know we're having a ball because we're riding in taxis and the subway and by ourselves and with our little metro cards and he accepted me. So I I argued my case and was like please don't let the rest of my life be determined off of off of a period of high school and where I didn't do well, I wasn't thriving and it wasn't even what I wanted. This has nothing to do with what I'm even applying for. Here's my artwork. You accepted me based off of talent, but now you're rejecting me based off of math and science grades. So it was a good argument and they accepted me based off of uh, academic probation. So the following fall, Kristen and I got to be roommates together on campus at FIT on uh 27th and 7th Avenue in Manhattan
0: and what year was that
1: 1999 had to be 99 graduated in 98 it was 1999 fall of 99
0: okay and how, how many years of a program was that
1: um it should have been a two years associates and then go on from there <laughs> but I made it three semesters <laughs> two and a half semesters because there was a lot of pressure. Um, my family, like I said, didn't have a lot of money. And my dad was always worried about money. So there was a lot of pressure on how was I going to pay for this? I was all on student loans. What are you gonna do when you go? Out? I realized now that this was probably the wrong way for anyone to go about this. There's I, I could have found something, I'm sure. But I felt that pressure and I at, you know, 19, 20 years old, started getting really nervous. And I had gotten interested in the whole um, music and club scene and I started going out and I thought that this was amazing and plus going out to clubs it really like it stoked my creative fires all the dancing and music and kind of this weird environment and I started collecting records and I decided that I wanted to get some turntables and start DJing some I hadn't bought the turntables yet but I did have a stack of records and CDs so I remember being in uh, my dorm room it, which are few and far between at FIT. I've managed to score this two years in a row because of being out of state. So I remember going through my uh, records and my CDs and looking to see which labels that of these artists that I liked had um, either distributors or a label based in Manhattan. And I just started sending out resumes and faxes and calling all these offices. And one of them wound up calling me back and I was looking for an internship and I didn't even really know what that meant. And my resume was really funny. I fudged so much of it because obviously at my age, I I hadn't really had too much work other than being a a lifeguard and a swim instructor. So mute records, um, on 22nd, between sixth and seventh called me back. They, Um, had Depeche Mode, they had The Prodigy before Madonna's label bought them out, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, PJ Harvey. And then they had Paul Van Dyke, which Paul Van Dyke is this big German trance DJ. He was my absolute favorite. The group of people that I started going out with all the time, that was like a big deal. So we would go regularly to go hear Paul Van Dyke play it at Twilo nightclub. So they called me back and I was really stoked. So I went in, I interviewed they just needed someone a couple days a week to stuff press kits. So I would go in and I'd actually have to walk to the post office, get this giant mail cart, walk it to the office. And it was like two avenues, 10 blocks. It was like a, when I was your age kind of story. And so I would go and I'd grab this thing and I'd go to the office and I'd just kind of quietly sit there and stuff press kits and whatnot. And I was in awe because here I am this kid that I'm from Long Island, but I spent the previous nine years in North Carolina. Was it nine? Middle school, high school, and like part of fifth grade. Six, seven something years. So I'd been in this little bubble for a while. And now I'm in Manhattan. I'm like living the dream. I'm in a record label. Like there's like famous people in and out all the time. And I really did want to be involved in music because it was a—it was that creative. It kind of played really well with the arts. So I could I could go home and paint. And then do this whole music thing, but I was still in school part time, but I was quickly losing interest um in the whole school aspect because I felt like no matter what, I could create on my own. But the the school thing almost felt like a waste of it kind of felt like a waste of money. And I looked at it the wrong way. I should have maybe gotten the degree in the piece of paper, but to pay all this money to go and do something that I was already doing on my own felt kind of silly. And there's a lot more with that. and the level of silliness that I felt from some of the classes that I was taking. Um, So eventually I wound up dropping out of school. I was paid $6 an hour at my internship. So it's not like I was making the big bucks. And I went and looked for My parents kind of helped me a little bit, but mostly I was living off of these student loans. And they're like, well, we can't support you. So you're gonna have to figure it out. So I moved to Brooklyn. Um, I got a job at limelight nightclub full-time and I tried to keep up with doing some stuff for mute. So I did some club work, but I told them I've got to, I've got to make a living now. So I took this day job working as a receptionist at limelight. It was the big club in the old church. The movie party monster was based off of this club and the stuff that happened there. And I was there for a while. And, uh, the, the president over at mute was like, I continued to work the door and do guest lists and stuff from mute. They kept me kind of in the fold, but they were like, hold, hang on. We're going to try and find a place for you because over the course of the time that I just interned there, I really asked a lot of questions. I showed interest. I, you know, was really eager to do more and they were like, hang on. We're going to try and find a place for you. This kid does not belong at this limelight. They knew more than I did (laughs) about the history So they did eventually um, pull me in. Limelight was crazy. In the the end of that, they were in the middle of, uh, it was lots of lawyer calls and whatnot that I was fielding because they were in the middle of deploying, uh, not deploying, uh, trying to deport the owner of Limelight, which they eventually succeeded in. I don't know, it was they, I guess the feds.
0: (laughs) That that was a movie that Macaulay Culkin played the lead? Yes. Yeah.
1: So... The end of that was like me realizing, like, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? And stories started coming out, and I realized my grandparents start sending my mom articles about things that happened there, and I was like, okay. But um, mute did call me and say, we've got a spot for you. They hired me. I, they had me work a, a guest list one night for a Paul Van night show, and I was there with a bunch of friends. And the president came up to me, I think around nine o'clock in the morning, is said, we like you, kid. We're going to hire you full time. So that's how I wound up eventually um, taking this full time job at at a record label at the age of I think it was I think it was twenty when I took it on full time. I can't remember. I was nineteen or twenty, but it was that. That was I thought it was it. I was I found my way in. We've all seen the secret to Su- my secret to success, or whatever that movie is with uh, Michael J. Fox, where he works his way up from the mailroom. I was like, I'm going to be a record executive. That's what I'm going to do.
0: <laughs> well, before we progress, just quickly, when you look back, because we're going to obviously talk about you know some mental health stuff as we get through the conversation. Whether it's uniform professions, you know, like Tier and some other people have been on, whether it's you know other people, civilians, whoever it is. M- as time goes on i'm amazed and i hear more people amazed just how many people have elements of their childhood that contributed to mental health issues further down now it doesn't have to be horrific but when they look back okay this was a definitely a either compounding element or a kind of a crack in the foundation when you look back at yours were there any things that you identify now being older and wiser
1: panic about money for sure uh that causing me to make some pretty like quick and rash and panicked decisions because I, I i wasn't playing the long game because i was always worried about the present and the very near future rather than so i was playing a lot of checkers instead of chess
0: Interesting yeah and I think that's a financial stress in general yeah. is is one of the elephants in the room really it's it's oh, it's a given everyone has that yeah it doesn't mean it doesn't create I mean I lost I lost a home a few years ago after a divorce and tried to hang on to it and then lost it and it's actually a, a blessing in disguise it truly was I think that it was so poorly built um, and uh, you know I managed to get the mortgage kind of redone so it was lower so I ended up walking away with money regardless but you talk about shame. You talk about yeah. guilt. Lose it. Lose the family home. <laughs> that's that's one. Yeah. That will really stack it up there. Um, all right. Well then. So you're in Manhattan. You know, around 2000 2001. So, kind of walk me through your very powerful story of that horrendous day on in September 11th.
1: So, um, up until this point, everything was pretty kind of carefree, and I had to for a 20 newly 21 year old what I considered the keys to the city. I was hanging out in DJ booths with these like big names and, you know, I could walk into almost any club in Manhattan without paying and go and have this great night and I'm painting and doing art and partying and living it up. And um, I was living on, I'd moved back into the city by now and was living in a loft. It was a commercial loft on Uh, 29th street between 7th and 8th Avenue. So actually only a few blocks away from FIT, but now I'm completely separated from school and just working full-time. And I took some odd jobs at clubs and whatnot, but pretty much just worked. I worked Monday through Thursday at mute. I was just shy of a full 40 hour week schedule because there was a law in New York that 40 hours you get health insurance. (laughs) So I was Monday through Thursday. And then I did some odd jobs here and there doors and DJ gigs and whatever. And I was never big. I was never really a great DJ, but I did, these were things that I did. So I was living on 29th between 7th and 8th. Um, my roommates, there were four of us that lived in this loft space. We had bunk beds, we paid like 350 a month for rent. The water would constantly go out at the most inopportune times. But at 20, 21 years old, you can do that and live that life and kind of deal with it. And there was a music studio next door. We weren't really even legally supposed to be there, but the property manager knew that there was this group of girls that lived there. And I think there were three of us that were in town on September 11th, 2001. One of my roommates was away back in Arizona visiting family. One was already at work at the we lived in an old furrier building. So our closet was actually like a vault and we were, that was the the fur district. And one of my roommates was across the street, um, working at a furrier. And so it was just me and my one roommate, a different Kristen that we did room together back at FIT. And it was me, her, her boyfriend and one of their good friends. And I was up and getting ready for work. And the three of them, Kristen, Nick, and Alex, which I don't know where any of them are now, we're not in touch at all, but they had all gone out to China club the night before and partied and were all kind of hung up and passed out. And that was the big place. This roommate was an aspiring model. She did a lot of modeling and that was place where all the models went. That was not my scene. So they all went out and did that thing. We're kind of hungover, and I was getting ready for work. And, um, I remember my roommate that was at the furrier building called and the, my clear plastic multicolored, the old phone that everyone had back in the nineties rings. And I picked that up and she just sounded really weird. And she told me to turn on the news and I turned the news on. We had one TV in the in our like living room area, big couch, small TV. It's a big open space. Our kitchen was right behind me. The bedroom, which was really just a, a room with the tapestry curtain hung to separate the two rooms. And I turned the TV on and I think Nick and Alex were passed out on the couches. And I saw the first, you know, the the first tower had been hit and there were tickers going across the bottom of the screen. and it took a minute to kind of process what was happening. And uh, the guys had woken up and they're looking at it and we're just kind of like, Holy shit, a plane crashed into the world trade center. And at that time, you're not thinking much of anything other than like, Oh wow, that's really crazy. And, you know, we're sitting there watching. And the next thing that I, I know that I can remember is a second one crashes into the second tower. And that's when um, that's when we knew that something was really wrong and that's not an accident. So it really quickly turned from you know watching this freak thing to, holy fuck, this is an attack. like we're being attacked right now. And it's a very surreal moment because this is something that you watch in a bad movie. Um, America, the United States, has just been brutally attacked. That's not supposed to be something that happens to us. Um, so I remember just kind of telling everyone to to get their shit together. And we decided I said we we've got to leave. I remember that my panic was that we were um, we were only a few blocks from Madison Square Garden Penn Station which is a major point of interest and it's a major transportation hub. So that was starts at 32nd or 34th, same Avenue. And then the Empire State Building was kind of diagonal, a few, like one or two avenues, a couple blocks. So we're in the middle of like all this major stuff. And my first thought was they, whoever this is, I didn't know very much about politics, world events. I had my head so far up my own ass it wasn't even funny. But they, whoever this they is, are attacking major, they're gonna start attacking major points of interest. Like I didn't think that the finance I didn't even make the connection of World Trade Center, Twin Towers and Financial Center. I was all I really was so ignorant, knew that it was a major monument. (laughs) So I was like, well, Penn Station's probably next and Empire State Building is those were my two big concerns. So I did not want to take any kind of underground transportation. I don't think it was even, I think they shut everything down, but I really don't know, can't remember. So I remember getting this a bag that I brought with me was something I hadn't in high school. It was one of those stupid hippie, like corduroy patchwork bags. And I shoved a bunch of shit in there and everyone kind of grabbed a bag and shoved some stuff. And it's funny, the things that you grab in those moments. And it was like a bear, a stuffed bear that I was still, I still have it that I'd had since I was a little kid that my dad brought me back from one of his hunting trips and a handful of photographs, a couple of CDs and like a change of clothes. And that was it. It's like, the important things. Because in those moments, um, I didn't know if we would ever be coming back. I mean, we are watching the absolutely unthinkable unfold. And there was nothing in my frame, there was no frame of reference for this and how this was going to go. So I definitely was like, we may not ever be coming back here. This place could be blown up. And and that's the level that I went to per, kind of immediately maintained oddly a level of calm, but just my immediate thought process was this isn't, this place isn't going to exist anymore. Let's now we need to get our shit and we need to figure out how we're going to get the fuck off the Island. So we um we started walking and when we, when we went down to the, the bottom of the building and we came out and we're like a couple blocks again from Penn station, Madison square garden. And it was really odd. And I will never forget this particular fact, despite I what I know it had to have been loud and there had to have been sirens. There had to have been people talking in chaos. It's New York, everything that I remember with silence. I don't remember any sound. So that's the more reading that I've done. um, Auditory exclusion is a part of experiencing uh, certain levels of, it's the way that your brain kind of makes sense of certain levels of chaos or trauma, or, you know, being able to hone in on these parts of survival or the relevant information in that moment. And you kind of push out everything else that you don't need or the brain doesn't think that you need. So it was to me, the memories of that day are pure silence. And I remember, you know, kind of bits and pieces at this point. And there's a lot that I can't remember, no matter how hard I try. But I remember walking past a radio shack and it was kind of like in slow motion and we're watching on every all the outward facing TVs like we're watching something on like gremlins and every TV had uh just re- repeat footage of the towers being you know crashed into by these two planes and and no talking we're just kind of looking at each other and and communicating a lot without any words or at least that's how i remember it so we did Kind of, there were people everywhere. There were people on the street from what I remember, but super quiet. So we started making our way up the island. Um, we were walking towards the George Washington Bridge and we kept trying to use pay phones at various locations and the lines were cut. Our cell phones didn't work. We had, we all had flip phones. This was way back before the era of smartphones. And we kept trying to use pay phones to, to call parents or people and let them know that, we were okay because I knew for a fact that my parents would be panicking. Uh, I knew I was far enough away from it, but I n- knew that they were still, as my parents, they'd be freaking out. So I was trying to make calls to let people know that, you know, we're okay. Or we're making our way off and just couldn't get through. And we walked and it was kind of sunny, hot day and made it about halfway up. I remember being near the Javits Center and getting past that. And then at some point, one of the guys who stole cash in his wallet from the night before um, managed to flag down like the only taxi that we had seen all day and he didn't have passengers and he gave him a hundred dollar bill to take us up to the George Washington bridge. Um, so we made it up there to the bridge and we didn't really know what to do next. There were a- thousands of people all up there with us all kind of waiting, and we just had to wait at the base of the bridge for hours. They would not let us cross. And I remember finally being able to make a phone call and uh, pardon me, because my voice is gonna start to get a little shaky here. It's, I I start to, my hands start to shake even now, it's 20 something years later when when I talk about it. But I finally did get through on a phone and I called my parents and I wanted to let them know it was okay. And it was this weird moment. And I remember describing this later to a personal training client of mine who is a, a therapist. And this is when I started to kind of wake up and realize that I needed help. I needed to get some counseling. Um, I was at that payphone, and I remember bitching about, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm missing this hair appointment it took me months to get in with, and I'm talking in this like ridiculous Long Island accent, which I still had back then. And it was like, I just went full on. And I, I remember telling her that. And I remember in that moment, it was like, I split myself off under that bridge. So there, it was like, I cut a whole part of myself off and just pushed it away, not to be seen again for at least another nine years. And that was the part that was present and freaking the fuck out and then there was a part that was like blocking what was really happening out and just trying to survive in the moment and being like it's not that bad everything's fine because the reality was way too heavy and way too far outside of my kind of scope of understanding to to sit with and be present and so I think that really concerned my parents and, you know, I did my usual thing where I brush it off and kind of threw out a couple of curse words and, and, you know, brush off your shoulders and walk it off and rub some dirt in it. And, you know, I'm okay. I'll call you once we get to, I don't know, wherever we're going and hung up the phone. And we were eventually, we got into line to, they, they, I don't know, cops, military, there was a combination, but we were told that we were allowed to start lining up to be ushered across the bridge and I later found out and if you can dig up reports that there was allegedly a truckload bomb that was under that bridge I'd have to look through that again I've only found minimal about that but that was what we were later told by a Kristen's mom whose friend was state bureau of investigation that's why we're waiting so long I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's what we were told. And I have found articles that cited that or similar. So I'd have to really dig again to see if I can confirm that. Um, But either way, we were made to wait and then we we got in line. And I don't remember a ton, but the things that I do remember are so vivid. And I remember the one woman that was standing in front of me in line that had short hair, a suit jacket on suit, skirt and tennis shoes. And she was covered head to toe in, in ash, her face, everything. There was another man, same thing. And they all just had this, like, it was so bizarre to me that they didn't even bother to wipe, wipe the ash away from their eyes. They, I was witnessing their shock. And these were people that clearly were right there. And um, it's odd to look at someone in that state because it's kind of like you're looking at a ghost. Like there's a person physically there, but there's there's something missing. There's somewhere else. And that will forever be etched in my memory. So we did get on these the blue vans, the blue van were what you take Um, their airport. Buses, you would call the blue van and a bunch of. Uh, they'd go and pick up a bunch of different people that were all going to the airport around the same time. So military had, um, gotten these and we've got M 16s and fours. I'm not sure what the service duty weapon was, but there's, I don't, I I'm guessing it was probably national guard that were there with their service weapons was just the first time I'd uh, ever seen anything quite like that up close and personal. And They got us all into these vans where we um, drove across the the bridge and got dumped off in Jersey. And again, that was like one of those slow motion movements or slow motion memories where as we were driving across, that's when we got this full view of uh, just these two pillars of flames and smoke. And we just were looking at each other without words. And we just look back and stare at it and look back. It was like, you're trying to understand like, is this really happening? Like what is happening? Because we still didn't have a lot of answers and it was just silence. And we just stared at this as we drove over. And this is kind of a weird thing to say, but I didn't know what we were being dropped off into, like were we being dropped off into like refugee camps on the other side, like I didn't know how bad this was, I think I expected a lot more when we got dropped off, when we made it to the other side of the bridge and got let off these buses, it was just like that was it, there were no words, there were no instructions, that was it, so I think I I think I expected them to like corral us a bit more, tell us where to go or what to do, but instead we were just kind of on our own. So we walked, uh, we walked really far. We walked Lee road into Teaneck, New Jersey. And at some point we stopped in a pizza place. And I think a phone call was made there to a parent. And we just kept walking towards um, the Alex's mom's house. And eventually she, found us on the road and picked us up. We waited there and then some point Kristen's mom picked us up and we stayed over there for I don't know how long. I don't know how long. I don't know if it was days, a week, but eventually we came back to the city to our apartment. Don't remember the trip back at all. I don't remember like entering back in. So there was so much that was such a blur. So that was,
0: um, that was my day. Well, I think that's what's really, well, firstly, interesting, because so many of the accounts I've had have been from responders or members of the Coast Guard or, you know, all these different perspectives of that day and, you know, very, very up close and personal. But we forget about the ripple effect, you know, that anyone there, as you said, I mean, up to that point, that kind of thing happens in a Die Hard movie. And all of a sudden, it's happening on Manhattan Island, like, just blocks away from where you're living. Um, when you were there at the bridge, waiting to go across, like, what was that? What was the feeling on mass? I mean, you had so many New Yorkers just just waiting there. You had you know the, the shell shocked people are in front of you. But what was the overall feeling? Were people kind of uh, compliant? And I mean that in a positive way, you know? Because I mean, you had absolute chaos down there. But now you're at this bottleneck where you're trying to get across the river.
1: I think it was, um, from what I remember. And I always say that from what I remember, because memory is a fucked up thing. We, our memory isn't always an accurate account of what happened. There are some things that I know for certain. And then there are others I'm like, well, the way I remember it. So the way I remember it is that people were compliant and just kind of quiet. And it, it was not really chaos there. I think there was maybe a little bit of like bickering amongst each other is, you know, irritability is the response to trauma too. And as I, you know, stated about me complaining and getting an attitude about missing my hair appointment, it's the only thing I could focus on and not lose my shit completely. But all in all, I, I just generally remember it being kind of like quiet and people just... Kind of going along with what we're being told to do at that point because we didn't have a choice. We couldn't, we couldn't really go anywhere. Maybe we could have fought, but I think we're all in so much shock. And it's so crazy to—I still have to say it out loud sometimes—that like, I witnessed war, an act of war, here in America. That's not—that's not supposed to happen here. we were always taught that that kind of like that can't happen here. This is America. So at that point, it's kind of like all bets are off. What what is going to happen next? And I definitely spent a lot of time in the years that followed waiting for the other shoe to drop.
0: Now, as you were making that journey across, again, was there a moment where you were in a position to see the tower start falling as well?
1: No. Um, Well, when we were crossing, yes, I could see that. And I don't remember watching Collapse. I just remember fire and smoke and and that image. But I don't remember seeing the towers fall like that actual moment. I think the only thing I ever saw them actually falling was the replaying that happened and on TV for, you know, the following year to come.
0: So you find yourself back in Manhattan, you know, as you said, the, the, the time is distorted at that point. What what was the the ripple effect of that? You know, despite that chaos around you, I'm assuming that your apartment was still intact, and and you kind of would plot back into your life again.
1: Yeah, apartment was fine. Um, we went back to work. There were some other weird incidents that year. Um, there was a incident where this is where. So there was a that happened at the carnegie deli there was a massacre there i can't remember that was before 9-11 and then post 9-11 um i was walking to the record store one day up towards 32nd 34th it was on the 34th it was on the same street as macy's on 7th avenue 34th street there was a record store and there was a a guy that like mowed a bunch of people down with his car like killed a bunch of people with this vehicle. So there's that. And then I was sitting at work at mute and there was a massive explosion at the apex building, like around the corner. I think it, it was a school, but at that point I was already waiting for it. So everything that happened was like, it was like, I, I was expecting bad things always. And I kind of expected it for a really long time to come where I was, I was always waiting for more attacks. I feel like there was a a positive morale amongst New Yorkers, but around people in my age group, there was a lot of kind of re- retreating too. I, myself and my group of friends eventually returned to going out. Um, the clubs were made into, a lot of them were made briefly into triage Centers. And then eventually they reopened as nightclubs. And that was our way of kind of uh, reconnecting again and carrying on was just going back out and dancing and doing our thing. But it just didn't feel the same. Everything just felt heavier and darker. And uh, I think it was somewhere around somewhere in the spring. I eventually just started to get tired of that and that the life style that I was living. And I realized I, I kind of was burying my head and I stopped partying as much and started working out more. And, um, I, that was my new kind of retreat was training and going on these long runs, but it was hard. We lived in, even though we're about two and a half miles from the trade center, you don't forget, and this is going to sound really dramatic and I need to stop kind of undercutting myself like that but you don't forget the smell of death and there it just it would waft we were two and a half miles away from a mass grave that was still burning and that smell would just waft in through our apartment windows and you could forget about it until you were hit in the face with that again and then it's all kind of rushing back to this thing that was still, it still was happening. They're still excavating. They're still, you know, trying to pull bodies out and um, extinguish flames that were still smoldering. Can't remember how long it was. It was a really long time that that fire was still kind of smoldering down there. So that was difficult. I'd go on these long runs and um, on the West side highway and on a the wind blowing on the the wrong way, and you get hit in the face with it. And you could, I could blast my music as loud as I wanted, but you you can't really block some of that stuff out. And you can't block out the, you know, now the subways that were guarded by military, and there was a a presence there that wasn't before. And instead of weather and ozone alerts, we received terror alerts for the day. And to look up at the screen constantly and it, you could have your tv off but it's it's everywhere it's in bodegas it's in businesses and to have these alerts warning you of the level of terror threat for the day um no matter how hard i tried to bury myself and continue on as life as usual it's not it's in the back of your subconscious 24/7 uh so eventually i think it was may of that year i kind of i kind of couldn't I was my little brain was scrambled and I went running back to North Carolina where my family was and I thought i'm I'm just gonna leave New York and i'm gonna I'm gonna go back to school and be something simple like a teacher <laughs> or figure out a new path and I was running and I did. I went back to Raleigh and I, I was trying to kind of figure out what my next steps were, but that began a whole new level of that became a whole new level of hurt because now I'm in a place where I've lived this crazy club kid lifestyle that no one could understand. And on top of it, now I've experienced this thing that no one can understand. And so I felt like an alien. I couldn't couldn't relate to anyone. Um, I was constantly angry and irritable and short with people and impatient um, because it was a lot easier to be that way than it was to to really dig into how I was really processing these events. I wasn't processing these events.
0: When you were telling that story, it really kind of resonated with me as what we're seeing now in two very different ways. You had an an absolute acute event that resulted in in a massive amount of death in a very short amount of time with, you know, obviously a huge traumatic physical element to it. And then you had the last couple of years where it was a long drawn out acute, excuse me, a chronic death, which, you know, affected some people. But the, the ripple effect and the things were put in place affected everyone. And I think, you know, as we come out of this, you feel that same weight. And I've watched it take so long for people to go back into parks again, to start trusting to remove their masks again. So even though these are two different things separated by 20 years and, you know, they look very different to each other. I think what you've discussed before is kind of what we're seeing now. Like, how do you return to normal when for a year and a half you weren't given a terror alert, but we were given a ticker tape of of you know COVID deaths, and you know oh, there's this new strain now, it's the Delta, it's the you know whatever, and it was that constant. We don't want you to stop being scared. Keep being scared because really, what did a terror alert do? Either you you, you either can protect us or you can't. A terror alert is is fucking smoke and mirrors at the end of the day, yeah. but it but it just escalated that fear.
1: Yeah, that's that's really all that that served. What were we supposed to do? Get off the island. It's either tell us that it's so bad that we all need to completely leave this place, or don't fucking say anything at all. What was the purpose of that? So, I mean, most of us continued to live on despite of it. And I can't speak for anyone else, but I think it just uh, perpetuated a. I lived. And I lived to the best of my ability, but there was definitely a level of fear and anxiety that just w- remained chronic. And that's probably etched in my system to this day. And then you throw something like COVID in. And I remember when that started happening and that I jumped on board really briefly where I was like, holy shit, this is really, this is like, people are going to start, start dropping in the streets and this is terrifying and we shouldn't go outside. And then, and, it didn't take me long to kind of snap out of that and be like, um, I can't fucking live like this.
0: (laughs) Well, I had even, you know, very respected, you know, members of like the seal community, for example, saying, James is going to be terrible. I've been told, you know, this and this. And, but in my gut, I'm like, you know, from what we're learning so far, this seems to be something that amplifies the illness that you already have, mostly, not always, but mostly. So the conversation is let's get everyone as quickly, as healthy as we can, as quickly as we can. And the moment I saw that wasn't even in the discussion, that it was vaccines, masks, et cetera, yeah. I realized, okay, this this is taking these lives. But the giant common denominator of why these people are succumbing mostly and, you know, other people are fine is underlying health. And yet yeah. everything you're telling these people to do is working against making the immune system stronger. So that was the issue I had early on. I like everyone else was like, oh, shit, this doesn't sound good. But as you said, very, very quickly when and then don't, it was exactly the same as post 9-11, we're going to Iraq. Uh, question these people were from afghanistan weren't they what the fuck are we going to iraq for you know what i mean it was i mean to me that was very obvious and glaring and it's not like a pat on the back it's just the moment you know you you have a fear for the for the right reason but all of a sudden you see the actions towards that supposed fear completely contradict what the fear is supposed to be that's when normal people take a step back and go wait a second you're totally contradicting yourself in what you're saying.
1: Yeah, you know, this vaccine thing, I won't go too far into it, but a lot of people got rich off of that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they got rich on either side. You know, they got rich on the vaccines, they got rich on, I mean, you name it. I mean, how many people made bumper stickers that were anti all that stuff that made a fortune, you know, T-shirts and hats and... Yes. You know what I mean? So, I mean, a lot of people made a lot of money. Amazon made a lot of money. Grubhub made a lot of money. I mean, all these, again companies that weren't improving health made a lot of money the gyms were closed the parks were closed the beaches were closed but you know fast food and alcohol killed it
1: yeah the parks and beaches thing is crazy like that surfer that got arrested got out there by himself surfing
0: damn hero though (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) well circling around then so what i'm kind of you know getting this impression of is you've you're working your way up to this record record executive position. This happens, of course, you know, the the career path pales into the the acute kind of hierarchy of needs of surviving a terrorist attack. But then you find yourself going to North Carolina. So what was that like, you know, spiritually, mentally for you to be away from the city that you seem to enjoy to live in, suddenly removed uh, from the career that you were pursuing?
1: It was terrible. It was terrible. It was Um, I can't say it was a bad move because I think that shifting gears out of, I I did wind up moving into a a somewhat of a better lifestyle. Uh, I wound up getting a personal training certification later on and doing that for 10 years, but being away from it, I eventually wound up running back to New York and I'd kind of go back and forth (laughs) constantly. And in this very, uh, very unself aware chaos for several years until I got back up there and I stayed there for, I don't know, I think it was, I'd have to do the math, but I was back up there until I was like 29. And that was living, I went from Brooklyn to Long Island. But it, it was really odd. I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could relate to anyone in North Carolina, um, despite their best interest to understand and connect and being, have normal conversation. I was no longer normal. There was nothing normal about my life prior to nine 11 in those couple of years. And now there was really nothing normal. And I couldn't relate to people who were, you know, they're finishing up college and their sororities and getting married and having babies. And they could just turn off the news when it was this, thing that was constantly kind of in the back of my head at all times. And I was on high alert at all times. So it was really weird. It was a weird, it was a weird time. And even now to this day, there are, I feel a lot better now, but there was a long period of time where there were, even after I made a period of adjustment, I still felt like there were a lot of civilians that I couldn't fully relate to or that, that couldn't understand me. Because there were things that would trigger those memories or every fucking September eleventh, the constant like influx of news and the never forget and the never forget. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> please.
0: I want to <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> And then I mean, there is an element of that. I mean, I had a Brian McKenzie on, um, who's a kind of breath expert and big um, you know, in the CrossFit community. And he was sober for a long time. And I remember him telling me there was a point where I didn't want to go to AA anymore because I felt like I was already recovered. I didn't want to be reminded of being an alcoholic. And I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. But it's the same yeah. with this. You want to memorialize. You don't want to forget as far as, you know, not even acknowledging anymore. But for the people that were affected by 9-11, you know, it's like um, one of my friends, Chris, was the firefighter that is an iconic picture from the Oklahoma city bombing. And he's holding a sadly a, a deceased toddler. And he would oh, say man. like that image comes up over and over and over again. Well, that's, that's his reality. That's his horror that sent him down a really dark mental health path.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's hard when your one of your biggest, like traumas is a part of national. It, it's part of like world history. Because there's no tucking it away and escaping it. It comes up in casual conversation more than than I would care to. I mean, if I kept a sheet throughout the week and ticked it off every time it came up, it's insane. And for a while, it doesn't do this to me now. But there was a long time there where any mention of it would now send me down into that post-traumatic stress rabbit hole where now you're back in the moment where that event is happening in its own little like universe. It's like it exists in its own vortex and it sucks you in. And now you're there instead of here. I'm a lot better now. And I went through quite a bit of therapy and I'm sure I could benefit from quite a bit more. Um, But I can't imagine that I I, I, on a very small level can relate to that where it's like, it it comes up, there's pictures, there's videos, there's things that are etched into like, it's culture. It's a cultural happening now and it gets discussed and brought up and, um, there's no running away from that personal, personal stuff, personal bad things that happen. You can kind of tuck into a neat little pocket and shove it real far down to only bubble up every now and then when you're by yourself and you can do a good job at shoving that back down too. But when it's right there and everyone else is talking about it in a group setting, like what you do get up and walk away, change the subject, make a joke. Uh, and every year is different. Uh, last year I went with black rifle and we presented a check to the FDMI foundation. And that was really cool. And we were part of the ceremony and tear was part of the parade. And it was a really odd mixture of emotions because it didn't feel like home anymore. And it used to feel like home no matter what. And we're in this weird part of the city, The, the financial district is uptight and super clean and boring and New York just feels different now, especially post COVID. And, um, For we talked about this in the first phone call. I don't know about other people, but I feel like there is a, when something traumatic happens, there's almost, at least for me, and I've heard about this from other people, kind of a mourning of a loss of the person that you thought you were going to become before that interrupted your plans, which sounds, it's a selfish statement. And I get frustrated with myself because, you know, I'm also surrounded by all these amazing humans that have dedicated their lives to service and they've done these really cool things and they don't seem to, you know, maybe they have their own things that they struggle with silently, but uh, it, it, this thing still bothers me at times. And I know people that have seen and done so much worse. And so it's, I get a little bit frustrated with that and I have to remember to, to kind of go easier on myself because there's so much that goes in how we process this stuff. It's who we were right beforehand. It's what our expectations were for the world It's upbringing. It's, it's a lot, but um, in, on the positive at one point in those years that followed, it did start wanting to do a little bit more. It, so it turned from me wanting to you know be this artist to wanting to, be involved in some way and put some skin in the game and help serve on some level maybe a little too late (laughs) but it at least woke me up when i was eventually ready to start dealing with things and i wanted to start kind of getting involved with with life a little more
0: well i think that's a valid point as well though firstly you know no one can compare trauma that's one thing i've learned from this conversation i mean i always refer to these pseudo extremes one of my guests was a boy soldier from sierra leone whose family were murdered and he was forced to, to kill i mean literally you can kill or you can be executed which one do you want um one of my friends um he was a middle child you know and they wanted a little boy then they wanted a little girl they had another boy so they tried again had a little girl so they're you know very, very different types of trauma, but that affected him. You cannot yeah. argue that that, you know, seeing what he went through with anger issues and, um, some addiction issues. I mean, that, that was definitely a thing as well. And I think even with, with war, with police, with fire, I have this realization when we're trying to kind of navigate our profession and process things that we've seen and done, there's almost like a false bullseye on, how I used to be well I can't be how I used to be because I was a firefighter for 14 years and saw horrible shit and didn't sleep every third day and so you know kind of like you're saying you're almost in a way mourning who you were and you know I'm 20 years older than when I first started as a fireman too so that's that's kind of like a maddening quest it's like well what is you know I hate that phrase you know the new normal but what is the new normal for me what does it look like and then that way you can let go of you know, what you should have been, because it's not what you are, but how do I find the healthiest version of who I actually truly am today?
1: Right. And how can I best show up in the world now you know after all of those things? so i I did um, there was a a long quest to try and join some branch of service, which that's a such a long convoluted story, but it wound up not working out. And I think there was a big, there was like this big part of me that felt like if I could, I really wanted to be army national guard because I really loved the idea of being stateside support in times of need or crisis. I really loved that idea. And I think there was kind of a healing component to that and an empowering component of well, I've been through these things and now I'm here and now let me do something to serve and to be there to help if, if more bad things happen. But it didn't work out for me and that's okay, but I'm still trying to figure out what what where I wanna go next. Is it just that I continue to paint and I, and that's where I show up best? Or is there something a little bit more? I'd signed up for an accelerated EMT course in August, but I had to pull out of it because two weeks uh, it's pricey I would have had to have someone watch the dog for two weeks, which is expensive. And it's the where to stay transportation. I have to be fully able to keep focus on nothing but that for that two weeks in order to pass that course. So I'm, I'm talking like taken out. I was taking out like a 10 grand loan, which if what happens next, if I don't do the contracting thing with a friend of mine, then I'm stuck with a certificate that gets me a, you know, maybe 17, 15 hour job in Seattle, which noble as it is, it's not going to pay the bills. So.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Now I know that the, uh, the barrier to join the military was related to tattoos. So let's kind of, step back for a second talk to me about the subconscious feeling of vulnerability and how that factored into bodybuilding and tattoos and also partner choices
1: um so i definitely went from being someone that was not interested in dating anyone exclusively or really dating anyone period to that following year i started latching on to i had to a boyfriend for the first time since high school and then I wound up getting married or g- dating someone long-term then we got married um I was 23 we met and they were all the same type of like big it's funny because I say that now and tear was not this is not why I made the selection with him I didn't go after it. we just happened but they're you know big into bodybuilding and it the it was building an external it's building shelter had somewhat a bodyguard and I built a very hard exterior. If you look at old, um, those photos of me, I was shredded and it's only, it's, it's the appearance of strength. It's the appearance of, um, a hard shell because I'm still, no matter which way slice it, I'm still five feet tall, a hundred nothing. And, um, no matter how much muscle I have, the, the muscle alone is not a defense mechanism, but I looked, a little less like someone that you would want. I looked a little less like an easy target. So the tattoos and whatnot, I'm sure played into that. I don't, I don't look, and I'm not a soft, I'm sensitive, but I wouldn't call myself a a soft person. But the outside reflects that I don't look like, a, a soft person who's not going to bite back if poked and i think it was it started out kind of subconsciously by design
0: well i think that was you know was one big takeaway from our phone conversation initially that you know really struck me is like that armor now that armor could be your own physique it could be who you choose as a partner um but as I've got older, I don't know if I was wiser or not, but older at least, um, especially with the advent of social media, you start to see just how much body dysmorphia factors into men. Yeah. So we always focus at women, you know, and they're worried about their weight and everything. But the number of people who dive into bodybuilding specifically, like especially like the abuse of things to maximize their size. You know, to me, it's it's kind of like a lot of the other narcissism that we see online. It, it's it's there, there's the R, and it's it's a you know an admirable thing that people do. But at the same time, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself: Is it also a cry for help? Is there a small child inside that giant man who's had something happen when they were young, and this they feel like this is their protection now? And so then you. Think of a woman. My 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 wife is four foot nine. She's half Filipino, and you know a couple of her previous guys were that type of dude. Yeah, and I know I know absolutely that when you're, especially if you're a petite male or female, you know, but if you want to feel protected, one way it may be right or may be wrong is to choose someone who's seemingly you know a warrior, even though ironically there might be a complete paradox in that choice. Right. Um, to feel secure but again if yeah. it's not actually a relationship that's nurturing and protecting that size and that anger and that fear and that unprocessed mental trauma can actually be turned inwards towards that partner instead
1: yeah absolutely my the guy that i married it was that was definitely the case with him um selecting bodybuilding and eventually getting into the bodybuilding drugs uh to build up that hard exterior, it was to a T. So you had two fucked up people uh, seeking similar things in each other or otherwise.
0: Yeah. And I think you see that a lot, you know, I mean, they they call it toxic relationships for a reason, you know, they're, I think one of the biggest things is, you know, as as you hear discussed a lot in you know, these, um, these forums is wanting to, was someone to either save them or for them to save you and then the reality is you have no business going to relationship until you've done the work yourself none of us Absolutely. are perfect but at least you've identified these are the things that i got to work on and then you meet someone and you discuss <laughs> to each other about the things that you're working on yeah because my wife was reading from you know losing her previous boyfriend to suicide you know so oh she was God. she was in you know in, in the pain cave definitely i was reading from a horrible divorce but we kind of yeah it was rocky at the beginning but we had to navigate each other's healing you know and not one wasn't the quote-unquote strong one we both kind of licked our wounds together as we kind of progressed up and it's an ongoing thing that will still rear its ugly head once in a while but um yeah i mean you have to you have to be vulnerable you have to be honest you can absolutely be hurt and have trauma but if you hide it or project something that you're not, then absolutely it's gonna be a recipe for disaster.
1: Yeah. And it'll always come out in some way, shape, or form. So um self-awareness, number one, is important and the ability to be honest and to be vulnerable. It ain't easy.
0: <laughs> so as you're going down this, you know, these next few years then and you know, you're with people that you realize you shouldn't don't want to be with um what what was your kind of lowest point and then how did you then start kind of pulling yourself out of that
1: oh god uh lowest point i had a rebound relationship immediately after um was pretty immediately after leaving my ex-husband and i realized it was the same exact thing i had chosen chosen a, a big jacked up uh MMA a guy with his MMA pro card and he was actively fighting when we first started dating and quickly learned that and I started going to church I'm not a church person I I wish I was I admire people that still have faith in something and I just don't and I imagine this is going to spawn some some emails and some messages but it, he just wound up to be a, another like big controlling. And I realized that I didn't need church. And I needed a therapist, <laughs> but it was a really fucking long road. Cause I feel like I, at that, after that time where I started just doing more crazy things in order to h- further hide from myself and what I really needed help with, um, I felt like I lost faith in myself. I lost a lot of trust in myself to make the right decisions, to choose based off of, you know, being self-aware. It, the whole, like me going to church thing out of nowhere for some period of time, it, it, and I really went full bore. It almost felt like looking back, it felt like a full on nervous breakdown. Like I I just kind of lost my mind completely. So that was hard to come back from. And then there was kind of a level of shame and embarrassment that, everyone around me watched me go through this thing where I briefly turned into someone else completely. And it was just a response to, um, you know, compounded trauma. And even now I'm talking about, it, it's kind of embarrassing, but it is what it is that I had to dig myself up out of that. I I left training my thing that I was working towards for a decade. And that's what I thought I was going to do forever. I was just going to keep building on the you know, fitness and nutrition as a career choice. And I got a job at a grocery store, Trader Joe's to get some insurance. And, um, it, it was just a really long, hard event. I moved back in with my parents for about two years. Cause I really just, I needed time. I needed time to be tired. I needed time to just sit with my shit. Um, I needed time to not be in survival mode. And eventually I've got my own place again, but it was, I had to struggle with so much now the career that I left and where was I going to go from there? And I'm fortunate. I've, I've, I'm doing all right, but I still am trying to figure out my, what is my, what is my bigger calling? What is my career path? If it wasn't training and if I wasn't meant to go into some form of Service, I'm always looking for the bigger meaning. And maybe I just need to sit with things and just make art, <laughs> do my job and make art again.
0: Well, firstly, I mean, as I'm sitting here video chatting with you and there's the piece of art behind you, I mean, that seems to be a resounding truth through the whole journey. And this, I mean, God, there's so many different versions of art now. I mean, whether it's illustrating, whether it's, you know, animating, whether it's, you know, like you said, just actual fine art. Um, You know, if that's the the truth, if that's the passion, then, you know, it seems like that keeps rearing its head and you can use that in a world of altruism and, you know, in some some way, shape or form.
1: For sure. And it's something that brings me peace and gives me purpose when I go into when I get into painting, everything else kind of disappears. And that is a huge positive. So. I do it now, I sell my work, and I'm just trying to accept like, do the things that make you happy. Let the, stop putting so much pressure on trying to figure everything out all the time. But there is, there's the pressure of, as adults, having a career path, having this strong upward mobility and what's the next step, but maybe I just need to to do art and see where that goes.
0: Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, if you're good at it and you're passionate about it, I mean, i had no idea that you know six years ago when i was still in the fire service that six years later we'd be having this conversation and this was my full-time gig and i'm writing the second book i mean i'm a firefighter I, i go to a station and i wait for a call and i jump on the rig and you know go do my thing with my crew but um you just you you never know but the same altruism that took me into the fire service is continued in this project it looks completely different now and there's nothing sexy about a microphone (laughs) but you know luckily i I got a girl first and then i transitioned out Um, (laughs) (laughs) but you know but it's true that the mission is there and i think that's what's the beautiful thing about the internet is we see people you know create and and make make a a career out of some of these most obscure incredible things like you know like dude putting matchsticks together and they zoom out and it's brad pitt's face or you know farts in a jar yeah there we go (laughs) farts in a jar you know not not my jam but you know you do you (laughs) i want to just something you touched on as well i think this is an important thing just to to talk about for a second As a friend of mine that was struggling, he was a firefighter here. He's actually moved to um, a different state now, but he was going through a very dark place. And he, the local kind of, I guess, go to mental health person was the chaplain who I've, you know, I've had on the show is an amazing man. But in that particular conversation, the Jesus has a plan for you talk. Didn't resonate, and and yeah. I myself, I'm ex- you know very very spiritual. I believe that there's something more than this. I believe that you know there's a God. I talk to Him. If there's not, then I'm a fucking lunatic because I'm talking to someone. Um, you know, I see the beauty in nature. You know, I, I question that it was just started from a big explosion. And you know, each to their own. We all have our our perceptions, right. and, and that's the thing. Religion should or spirituality should be a personal journey. But I think it's important, especially in America, where Christianity specifically is. Is almost aggressively pushed out there. And the, mm. the faith itself is beautiful, and I see some amazing people as part of that faith. But there's also a shame, like an element of shame if you're not a Christian. Yeah. So I think if you're in crisis, you're like, well, let me try this. This must be the answer. And for some people it is, but for some people it isn't. I think understanding that that's okay, it might be complete you know atheism that works for you it might be you know buddhism or you know islam or some other version of of spirituality but i think that you know we've also got to acknowledge that one specific religion or or philosophy does not work for everyone that's why there are multiple ones and different thought processes and if the one you subscribe to is is truly based in kindness and compassion beautiful but if that doesn't resonate with you then find your own path
1: yeah, it's a hard one. Cause I wish I could believe that there was a, there's a plan. There's there's yesterday when the copy or die article came out about the tattoo stuff, uh, there were a bunch of people that hey, you were meant for bigger and better. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> like there's a path laid out for me. And I, I really got, I don't, I'm not a everything happens for a reason person. I was a long time ago. And now I'm just like more of a shit happens and you have to respond to it, figure out a way to respond to it in in the best way possible or use it in the in the best way possible. I'm not a I'm not a there's a path laid out that I just don't see it kind of person.
0: Yeah, no, I agree as well. I think, you know, this this is our reality. We found ourselves in this life on this planet. You know, again, that's a belief, too, that this is a round rock flying through space. I mean, how do we know? Um, But, you know, I think there's an element of chaos within this beautiful thing that is the natural world. And I think that I do believe in that energy philosophy that if you do good things in the world, you don't do it so that good things happen to you. But I think good things happen to you. That's not why you do it. You should do it because you want to, you know, make it better. This is the only world that we know. Fucking make it better. But what I see a lot of times, and of course, there are extreme examples of amazing people that just get the, you know, the shit card over and over again. But I think I truly believe that if that energy that cannot be created and cannot be destroyed, if you cr- use that energy and you forge it in a good, you know, a good, um, direction, that ultimately there is this, I don't know, this this kind of metaphysical element where it will kind of guide you to where you're supposed to go. I don't think there's a dude upstairs with a chessboard saying, all right, James is going to have a shit day today <laughs> and go. Or, you know, let's kill this person's kid because I have a plan, trust me. right? You know, no, fuck you. No, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I don't believe that, that God's up there stealing someone's child because wait, you'll see it's going to be better. But right. the adversity that comes from that heartbreaking event does create some amazing things they don't have the ability to bring back their beautiful little girl or little boy but sometimes it sends them down this path where they end up affecting millions of lives or you know whatever it is so yeah i mean i, I like i said i don't believe in the kind of truly has a plan like he's got a whiteboard up there with a sharpie right. but you know definitely you kind of you get out what you put in the kind of more of the karma philosophy
1: yeah i spent a good uh that oh, was a good period of time doing a ton of work with veteran service organizations. That was my way of giving back. And um, I've just kind of peeled back from it a bit in the last couple of years, just because I did a lot of it for work and I was in the corporate giving side of the house over at black rifle for a little while when I first came on and I've kind of peeled back a little bit. Cause I realized I need to I need to kind of do some self care and spend some time on my own stuff now, but that was, A wonderful thing to be a part of. I was an ambassador for Mission Twenty Two for a little while. I did um, Run Ranger Run and was an community ambassador for Gallant Few for several years in their annual fundraising event. Uh, I'm on board for Second Chance Canine, so I, I was able to get involved in a lot of really good things. That was able to to help some other people out coming out of service and out of you know that or 20-year war, but I still do kind of wish that I'd been able to, to at least check that, that box, but would have really scratched the itch. I don't know. Um, you know, joining the national guard is a very small potatoes on the grand scale, but, um, I think there would have been a little bit of a pride since pride feeling like I'd, I'd at least participated in, in serving, but can a cry over spilled milk.
0: (laughs) So if you could literally be, you know, king, queen for a day, and you could orchestrate where you do make money doing anything you can even imagine, what would that look like?
1: (laughs) It's so silly. I really do think I would just make art and like occasionally bartend because I love the social interaction there it I like being busy and on my feet. It's so simple <laughs> it's not a It's not a big, complicated um extravagant plan.
0: Well, have you had the opportunity to actually try doing that again? I mean, age aside, just jumping back in with both feet
1: um There's a fear definitely of not being able to to fully support myself in that sense but we'll see what happens over the coming years as I paint more and, and do more.
0: Well, you mentioned Black Rifle. So how did you find that organization or that, that company? And then talk to me about when you met here.
1: Um, so I came to Black Rifle when we moved out here, I started bartending and it was really hard to piece together a full-time schedule. I was getting these little like shifts here and there at one place. And, I wasn't making the living that I was when I was at the last place I was in Raleigh. So I started kind of toying with the idea of trying to find other work. And I made some friends that one of them worked at Beyond Clothing. And he brought me into, he was the art director and he wanted to kind of mentor me up and bring me into his department. And upon meeting with the president and sitting down talking, he decided that I just needed to be um, in inside sales selling uh, on the mission team. So selling uniforms and layering pieces to military and, uh, and government agencies and whatnot, which was really like interesting because I'd never done anything quite like it before, but I took it on because it was new and it was a challenge. It wasn't quite the place for me being 40 hours a week at a job doing inside sales, processing <laughs> contracts. And eventually tears team needed, um, He needed more people on his team in the corporate giving side. And that was cool because it had some purpose and it was sending coffee and and whatnot to people that were deployed, boosting morale. So it was cool. And that was really rewarding. And I helped him stand up the in-house nonprofit. It's really uh, fast paced couple of months. And then we had both gotten moved into new roles, but he and I met, oh God, 2016 via Instagram. And I just kind of started talking, and it was like Instagram started to become my personal outlet for starting to talk a little bit more about things that I'd been through, and it was healing to do so. And it was around September eleventh, two thousand sixteen. It must have been where was it twenty sixteen when we first met? Yeah, he had wrote something. I did some stuff with Ranger Up did some videos and that kind of opened up the algorithm and all these people started me following me, which is funny because I I was not a gun bunny or um, military or law enforcement. And I thought these people are going to quickly get bored because it's just some pictures of me working out some bar stuff and, you know, the typical picture of my food. And somehow I wound up kind of our paths crossed and I started you know, you'd look to see who the fuck are all these people following me. And I started reading through his stuff and he's a exceptional writer. And he had a one of the more recent photos was the picture of his FDNY paramedic Garrett. So who he did his internship with right before he left New York like two days prior to, or a week before or something, the, the world trade center getting hit and he wrote something. And I, was really touched by it. And I reached out and I messaged him and we chatted a little bit and I was dating someone. So it really was benign and it was really appropriate and friendly, but we kind of started a little bit of a friendship from there and we kept in touch, but, you know, kind of appropriate surface level until years later when we were both single and um, started chatting a bit more and realized that we both really liked each other. And we were both in this place of, uh, kind of being ready to, to give it a shot. And so that's how we met. So it just built from there. He was deployed. So he had a lot of time to, to chat and I was single and living by myself and, and bartending and free during the day. And we just found ourselves look like kind of looking more and more forward towards our conversations. So we started FaceTiming and then we decided when he got back, we were going to go on a date. So he flew out and took me out
0: beautiful and now you guys are engaged
1: yeah now here we are
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right well i want to just kind of hit on one point one more point before we kind of transition to some closing questions you you know led through this this you know incredible story that you have obviously the the trauma of 911 the the years after the kind of searching for purpose um what's as you've begun this upswing and i'm sure you know finding a, a nurturing relationship as part of it what are some of the tools that you use that you have began to, to heal after all this time?
1: Um, talking about it helps. Talking with other people that have had similar experiences doesn't have to be on that particular day, but having experienced um, kind of parts of, it's usually someone that's experienced a bit of war because the, the trauma is Typically the responses are somewhat similar. Even there's even a parallel with being in New York and leaving New York, that being the, the quote unquote, like the war zone. And in it's almost like the deployment place and then trying to go back to a normal place, which was North Carolina. This is obviously my scale, very small versus a much bigger thing, but there's a a bit of a there's a bit of a parallel there that Tier and I have talked about before. And so being able to talk to other people that kind of get it, um, working out consistently, that is my saving grace. I have to work out if I don't, I'm like a bottle of just nervous energy mess. So that's really important to me and sunshine and good food and not drinking too much alcohol and just taking good care of myself. Those are the big things. And, Um, different types of therapies. Massage therapy is great and physical. Anything that brings me back into my physical body is really, really important and really helpful in getting me out of my head. But being able to kind of talk about when things are kind of rearing their head again is really important
0: beautiful yeah i mean it's it's sad we touched on you know the pandemic just briefly but again when i ask this question and I, my question usually is what do you do to decompress is one of the closing ones but it's always the same thing it's exercise it's nature it's yeah. community it's conversation um and you know and things like you know jiu and surfing and, and diving yeah. things that make you present where you're not escaping it you just Removing that kind of maelstrom in your mind and, and getting back to just focusing, like you said, on on literally, you know, this this beautiful body that you inhabit and and you use it. So it, yeah. it you know it, it actually. all
1: things that I really love: jujitsu and, and surfing, skateboarding. Yeah, it's shooting my bow. Anything that gets me into the physical and into the into the moment.
0: Well, the first of the closing questions I love to ask is: there a book, or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today, or completely unrelated.
1: Um. Yes. So, um, "Live Wired: The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain" by David Eagleman. That one's really good. There is another one called "Dopamine Nation," which that was such an. It was such an easy read too. I breathed right through that. It was super interesting. These are all, a lot of them are all about neuroplasticity and helping the rewire the brain uh, either post-trauma or just in general with the amount of stimulus that we're exposed to nowadays. And the body keeps the score, which this one is really good, but holy shit, it's a little heavy and it can be. I hate this fucking word, but it's so true that it can be a little bit triggering at times, but there's also a ton of, I've highlighted so much stuff in this book because there's so many aha moments and like, holy shit, I do that. Or that's why I did those things. Or that's why my brain was like that. Um, it, that one's a really good one. It's just, I've had to put it down and, and pick it back up. So those are ones related to our discussion today. Um, but I've got favorite, tons of favorite books in general. My, one of my all time favorites, and this is apparently a favorite of serial killers, Bribe, <laughs> <is that laughs> J.D. Salinger. Those are my favorite books ever. Read that in summer school and was like, oh, wow, I actually like books. Um, Paula Coelho, the Zahir. I loved that book. There are a lot of really good, like little lines and whatnot. Um, the Things They Carried, one of my favorite books I've read in years. That is such a great read. Also not a light one, but it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, and The Girl with Seven Names, if we want perspective on, you know, what what oppression really looks like and what um, communism and and socialism look like, the girl with seven names is phenomenal it's a girl and a north korean de facto and she escaped a bunch of times and went back for family i mean her story is insane also not a light read <laughs> <laughs> i'm not really good on fluff
0: no that's brilliant no it's just the same with me even with movies these days I, I, it's hard for me to tolerate any movie that's not in some way new and enriching you know if it's the same shit when you
1: yeah i i've been i've tried to read it's um fuck it's the the road to nine eleven. it's um that's not the name of the book it's the tagline underneath it the looming tower and there's a series on it now but I don't feel like it's probably as accurate as the book and I've tried to read that it's been years now and it's so much information and it's so heavy and it makes my brain start doing these like crazy what if thinking things so it's a hard read but I'm trying to understand the history behind everything that led up to that point um it's good it's just a lot of info
0: yeah well when you look at the timeline i am not well versed in the history but some of my guests have kind of you know given me glimpses and you know it goes back to oh this nation did this to this area and then this nation did this, and it just goes back and back and back and back yeah. and back so there's almost no point of origin basically it's it's greed and hunger for power is, is you yeah know, which we find it- everywhere in every nation
1: yeah, and we're not getting rid of that. That's human nature. We're nothing more than evolved animals, and I think sometimes we forget that.
0: Yeah, well, I think the the big thing is one thing. Lesson that uh, history has taught us over and over again is that a tyrannical few can rule over the masses. And the moment that we have that next paradigm shift awakening, where we realize, hey, if we all communicate and band together. We can crush these fucking people and right. actually put some good people, some nice people, some kind, you know, walk softly, carry a stick kind of people in, you know, these leadership positions rather than feel like we have to cower down to them like some slaves in, the, you know, the Pharaoh's times.
1: Yeah. What I think that we need to do in order for that to really happen, for the people to come together more, is turn off our fucking television and quit tuning so much into social media that is just the, The new more ADHD version of our news, it's bits and quips and it's, the new war is a war of information and we're used, the division is used against us and it, it, we're just not fucking getting it. And that part's really frustrating. We would all, as people have so much more power, if we could come together and have a little more common sense.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, like you said, it's war of misinformation. hundred yes. percent. I mean, look at COVID, yeah. perfect example. Yes. It was a real virus that yes, was killing people. That's the middle ground truth. Alongside it also affects it, it depends on the resilience of the human. So let's make all humans more resilient. Don't poo-poo it and say it's some Chinese experiment, you know, or isn't real. But at the same time, you don't have to live like boy in the bubble in the middle. Let's make Americans healthy. We're 70% obese and overweight. There's your sign. Let's start healing. And what's happened? Fucking nothing, you know? So Um,
1: Nope. And we can't talk about that. We can't talk about, you know, the negative effects of Being overweight because that's body shaming and it's this is a multi layered
0: issue. Yeah. On tear and we think we had this conversation, like, you know, when you're a paramedic, you realize the only shame about having a body like that is that someone like me has to stick a tube down your throat when you're only forty five years old, put pads on your chest and fail to to resuscitate you. And then pull a sheet. That's the shame of having a body like that. Ridiculing someone from this size is just someone being a giant fucking asshole that's a completely different conversation but wanting people to have the health and to use this miracle of their body to thrive through their life there's nothing shameful about that
1: yeah i agree
0: all right well then shifting off my soapbox and back to the questions (laughs) um what about a, a movie and or documentary
1: oh man um this is such a hard one Movie and/or documentary. This changes constantly. Um, I feel like I'm gonna, probably going to say something really stupid right now, and then later be like, "Oh man, why didn't you say this thing?" Uh, lately, I've been really into watching the Bill Nye, Bill Nye Saves the World, Saves the Earth, the series on Netflix. That's like the best thing to fall asleep to because it's he's so awesome and he's so happy and like it's he takes. Every problem from a scientific perspective, but it's such a cool show. So I'm really into watching that right now and movie. I don't know. This one is a, this one is a changes on my mood sort of thing. I just saw the last Top Gun. So nothing's really going to top that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Seen it twice.
0: That was a good film. My son's actually shifted from wanting to be uh, a vet, veterinarian, to all of a sudden he wants to join the air force now. So I think
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Yeah, it had an effect. It's funny because so many of the aviators I had on the show, it was the first Top Gun movie that pulled them into it. Even though the different branches—Marines, yeah. um, Navy, Air Force—but um, here we are again. You know, thirty years or whatever and it's been, and it's happening all over again.
1: I wish I had seen that younger. My parents didn't get the memo about propaganda. <laughs>
0: It was a great recruitment strategy, that's for sure. (laughs) All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: So Denise Olson, um, she is amazing. She's the widow of Jeff Olson, who was one of the firefighters um, down at Ten House. And she and I have become good friends via Mandy Thomas, who's also another person that you would really probably be interested in talking to. She was Army and is now a firefighter. Mandy introduced um, Denise and I, and she's just she. There's just immediately with her, she just felt like someone so familiar and like family, and she's become a really great friend. She is such a unique, strong woman that has been through a lot. And last year, she walked from Boston Logan International, where the first plane took off, and finished at the World Trade Center. And Tia and I walked the last—I think it was like eight miles—from um, up near the the GW Bridge area of Manhattan down to the Trade Center with her, and then had drinks down at um, fuck the pub, the the pub that all the firefighters now the the name is yeah completely it's near near station 10 mind.
0: isn't it i, I forget the, yeah. the name now yeah
1: so, yeah i'd highly recommend talking to her she's awesome she just stays super involved and she's just strong and fierce and um she's raised some pretty incredible kids too
0: well she was on episode 494 so we talked was right she? before the tour the the tour the excuse me we talked right before the walk that we did yeah she's phenomenal we've we've stayed friends ever since Oh, awesome. And then Mandy Hi. is actually a friend from, you know, years ago now. So she's been on the show. It was actually with her previous boyfriend, oh, excuse me, previous husband, Brett. So, you know, a lot's changed since then, but um, yeah. it was still a great conversation. But yeah, so I've had her on as well. So that's the problem when you've got 600 plus episodes, you ask these questions and, yeah. and you're like, shit, they, I've already had them on.
1: <laughs> well, I have a friend in uh, North Carolina, which I haven't talked to in a while, so I need to hit her up. But her name is also Amber. Amber her name is amber and she is a firefighter and she's a i think she's a brown belt in jujitsu and she's just a badass she's just a really cool human that she up and built a tiny house and lives in that now and she's really cool so i'll have to hit her up and see if i can connect you too
0: absolutely brilliant thank you yeah especially you know jujitsu is obviously amazing and then the tiny house thing i mean that's hard to transition into when you're at a country and I'm i'm totally guilty of it myself my house right now is like 2100 square feet you know we we live in very vast spaces compared to what i've lived to lived in you know earlier years of my life especially japan which is like a shoebox awesome shoebox but a shoebox nonetheless nonetheless so to be able to scale that back down to have the you know bare necessities and you know save so much money not only in, in mortgages but also in energy expenditures that'd be an interesting perspective
1: yeah, she's living the life.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, then the uh, I've already asked you a decompressed question. So very last thing, if people want to reach out to you, where are the best places to find you online? And are there any places that they can actually see your work and possibly purchase them?
1: Yes. So I'm working on – I had a I have a website. I need to fix that whole thing because I had some, some identity – theft and cards changed and you know they default to charging you and i haven't fixed that yet but i online on instagram is really the best place right now i'm at that girl nicole something nicole is with an h so that's my primary instagram and from there i've got one for whiskey and one specifically for art but you'll find those links on my on my bio but that's my main point of contact right now and i'm working on a better system of Selling and commissions, but it's pretty much all just off of Instagram right now.
0: Beautiful, yeah. I mean, Instagram. I, I keep getting offered if I want to shop on mine. Like, I do, I, I do a podcast. I got nothing to sell. I have a book, and I had some shirts, but I'm not gonna, you know, use that. But you absolutely can run an entire business from Instagram these days.
1: Yeah, I need to figure out how to to do that and set up Shopify and all that, and trying to paint more now so I actually have stock of more i more paintings to sell because they go really fast. I just shipped off four abstracts and now i'm working on a big commission i just finished another one so yeah main, mainly instagram
0: sounds like the god or the absence of has already spoken you're supposed to yeah. be doing that
1: <laughs> yeah i agree
0: well i just want to say thank you it's been an incredible conversation as i always say to people that have walked back through that journey that you know they've worked hard to kind of heal through I just want to say thank you because I understand, you know, that it takes a little piece of you when you kind of revisit it, but at the same time there's so many people listening, I'm sure it may not be 911, but there's a version of what you've, you know, traveled through that resonates with them. So I know it's going to, you know, have a ripple effect on the people listening. So thank you so, so much.
1: That's I I definitely hope so. I'll probably <laughs> go for a run or maybe smoke a cigarette later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do hope that because people look at from the outside, what they see on social media or whatever, and what I'm doing now, and you're such an inspiration, you're such a strong person, but you hear my voice shake when I revisit such a hard topic. And it's, I hope that other people have been through hard things, realize that it's not a linear thing and it's, you have good moments and bad moments and you can have a great life despite it. and maybe learned something from where I've been and the road I've taken and I don't have it all figured out that's the big takeaway like I don't have it all figured out at all but I'm doing my best each day to you know live a life of peace and purpose and kind of do my best to show up in a way that is positive to the people and spaces around me
0: well I, I disagree with you as far as the the you know change in the voice I think that is strength I think, you know, actually having that vulnerability and being able to open those doors is true strength. Otherwise, it's just a facade.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, there was a time where I wouldn't even go down that road, period. I pretended like it didn't, like it never even happened, which is crazy.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. I truly appreciate it.
1: Thank you.